Well, the book of Judges, got a couple more weeks in that uh, before we move on to something else. I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, your study, the study of the book of Judges as much as I have. I always enjoy reading these great stories. Um, it's an exciting book filled with exciting stories, right? Uh, but, you know, because it's God's word, uh, it was meant to be more than just entertainment, right? We're, we're, it's not just a, a fictional novel or even a historical novel. Uh, just for our enjoyment. We do uh, enjoy it, but it's more than that. Hopefully, we've all learned some valuable lessons uh, from the examples of the judges and the, the things that happened, uh, and there's good and bad examples, and we can learn from both, can't we? So I hope we, we've learned something. We'll hopefully we'll learn a little bit more as we go the next couple of weeks uh, farther into the book. Well, as always happens to every human being, Eventually, our last judge that we talked about last week, Gideon, died. Uh, and for a period of time, after, as, as, as with all the, the, uh, the, the judges, after Gideon's death, uh, there was much turmoil. Uh, people turned back to the, the Baals and the, the false gods. Um, and and um, they were, for a little while, they were under the leadership of a man named Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech was actually Gideon's son by a concubine. That was a thing they did back then. With, uh, you had wives and then you had concubines, and he was the product of the concubine. Um, Israel had abandoned God after Gideon's death, and once again, as I said, worshipped the Baals uh, of the Canaanites. Abimelech was not one of God's judges, even though he's a prominent leader in the, the, the book of Judges. He ruled parts of Israel by convincing people to follow him and by murdering his 70 brothers uh, who were the sons of Gideon's many wives. Gideon had a lot of wives uh, as well and had 70 sons. So I don't know how many wives there were and how many each of them had, but it all added up to 70. Abimelech murdered all of his brothers uh, so that he could be the lone one. Actually, one of them did escape, uh, but um, uh, uh, the, that was uh, how he came into power. And the story of Abimelech is a long story, but basically Abimelech died when a woman dropped a millstone on his head from a tower. He was trying to attack the tower. She, she said, uh-huh, woo, uh, And that, it didn't kill him immediately, uh, he was going to die from his wound. It crushed his head. But it prompted him to ask one of his men to finish him off with the sword. You know why? Because he didn't want to be known as someone who was killed by a woman. <laughs> well, after Abimelech, uh, there were two minor judges named Tola and Jair. You read about them in chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. Not a whole lot about them. Uh, Jair is kind of interesting. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and controlled 30 towns. So, uh, I don't know why that's significant, but that was, that was one of the, the facts about Jair. Uh, and after these two judges' death, guess what happened? You guessed it if you didn't say it out loud. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eye of the Lord. Eye of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. 
And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Now, most of this um, takes place on the east side uh, of the Jordan. You got the Jordan River, you got the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, you got the Mediterranean Sea over here. Uh, this, this was the western side, which is where most of Bible history takes place. But we're, today we're talking about the, the eastern side of the Jordan River called the Transjordan. There were, there were a couple of tribes over on this side, um, and that's, that's where most of this activity takes place today. Um, now, when I read that scripture, I don't know if you did, but did you count the number of false gods or, or uh, false people's gods that were listed there? There were, if you count them, there's seven. Now, some think, uh, you know, when you see seven in the Bible, a lot of times that's symbolic of something. Seven often means complete. Um, and seven pagan gods, many have wondered, could represent complete abandonment of Yahweh. It wasn't just Baal, it was seven different uh, gods, uh, meaning they no longer served God at, at all. Um, I've been mentioning that the Israelites, when they would serve the Baals and the Canaanite gods, they often would also include Yahweh, which is the name of the Israelite god, in with all their other gods. Um, and uh, they would just say, well, you're the most important god, but uh, it, it, this could represent the fact that they had totally, completely abandoned Yahweh um, and didn't even consider him a god anymore. So God was angry, as you can imagine. Uh, so angry, in fact, uh, that we'll see in a moment, after he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites for 18 years, he decided he was done with them. Verse 10 through 14, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking your God. You, God, our God, and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonites and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out for me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You know, after 18 years, boy, were they sorry that they had been uh, serving the, the false gods uh, and uh, neglecting Yahweh. And as they usually did, they cried out to God for help. They had done this many times as we've gone along through Judges. But after reminding them of the many times that he had rescued them over and over and over and over again, this time God said, well, you know, that's it, enough, no more, I am done with you. In fact, why don't you just... Why don't you just cry out to some of those other gods that you insist on worshiping and, and clinging to and let, let them help you instead of crying out to me? So after almost two decades, after they had, uh, for 18 years, they had tried everything else, all the other gods, they finally decided to turn back and cry out to Yahweh. He was the last resort, it sounds like. You know, God doesn't want to be, as we've said, the most powerful God among many gods. God wants to be the only God, and God doesn't want to be the last resort after we've tried everything else. He wants to be the first resort, the first place we go. 
know, how often is God the last resort in our lives when we face trials, opposition, or oppression, hardship, you know, difficult times in our lives? How, how often do we, uh, instead of going to God, we self-medicate uh, with alcohol or with money or with a relationship or with work or with our peers' counsel or, or our own wits before we finally, finally decide to turn to God. God, I've tried everything else. Will you please help me? You know, God wants to be the first place that we turn to in our life, no matter what we face. Whether it's a, a celebration, God wants us to turn to him to celebrate and, 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 and be excited about a good thing. And he also wants us to be the first place we turn to when we're suffering, when we're in need of help. Our relationship with God should be such that we automatically, without even thinking about it, we just turn to God. He wants to be the first thing we go to, not the last thing, or the second thing, or the third thing, the first thing. Israel struggled to learn this lesson uh, over and over and over again. And here, uh, at least, God had reached his limit of patience with Israel. Well, Israel realized that when, when God said that, he said that he wasn't kidding. You know, and, and, uh, and it's like, uh-oh, we've really messed up now. So they pleaded with God again. And this time, for the first time, it seems, in the book of Judges, they promised to repent of their sin of idolatry, the worship of false gods. Uh, they even got rid of their false gods, and they pledged allegiance to Yahweh. Now, this was the first time. Before, all they did was cry for help. They didn't really denounce uh, and, and, and say, hey, we're sorry for worshiping false gods. But this time they did. Well, uh, God couldn't stand it any longer. He couldn't stand to see them suffering any longer. And, and especially with this added uh, repentance, you know, was it real or not? With that, you know what? God changed his mind. God changed his mind and he decided, okay, I'll send you another judge. You know, when we sin, we need to understand it's, it's no different today. When we sin, it breaks God's heart. Uh, it it even makes him angry when we intentionally sin. He wants to save us. Why? Because he loves us. He wants to save us from our sin because he loves us. And if we will turn to his son and genuinely repent, he's ready and he's willing to forgive us and welcome us back. But, you know, God doesn't want to play around uh, with pretend repentance or mechanical commitment something we do okay i'm supposed to repent so i'll do it um, he, god wants to see uh, the genuine repentance and genuine uh, trust from our heart and that's what he wanted to see from israel and, and maybe he was getting a little bit here finally the judge this time was named jephthah everybody say that 10 times real fast jephthah jephthah all right, verse 1 of chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. So we got a concubine, now we got a prostitute. Long story short, uh, of this first part at least of Jephthah, uh, because he was the son of a prostitute, Jephthah's brothers, now this is kind of the reverse of, of Abimelech, um, Jephthah's brothers from his father's wife, and Apparently, their father only had one wife, uh, drove uh, Jephthah out of the country to a place called Tob. 
I guess I think it was a baseball town um, <laughs> up north in, uh, in the northwestern part of, of there. But uh, to a place called Tob. There, there Jephthah became the leader of this, it's, it's called a, in certain uh, uh, versions, a gang of scoundrels. He became the leader of a gang of scoundrels. A literal translation of that term was uh, worthless men. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and many scholars think that maybe they were mercenaries or, or thieves even. And they just kind of rode around and maybe it was like Robin Hood or something. Rob from the rich, give to the poor uh, or something like that. But that's the kind of uh, guys that Jephthah hung around when he was up at Tob. Verse 4 and 5. Sometime later when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, isn't that rich? Uh, you know, the, first the brothers drive him out of the country because of who his mother was. Uh, and now the elders there, uh, where they lived, pleaded with him, would you please come back? We need you now. We need you now. You know, they probably had heard about this gang that he was a part of, that he was the leader of. You know, that they were men ready for some trouble. Uh, they were fighting men, just what they needed to lead them against the Ammonites. They needed someone like that to face their enemy. And so now all of a sudden, it, it wasn't so important who Jephthah's mother was. <laughs> he, would, he, 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 was uh, he was needed now. So well, let me ask you, how would you feel about that if you were him? You don't want me, now you want me? Uh, here's how Jephthah felt, verse 7. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you now come to me when you're in trouble? Mm -hmm. I'm sure he felt the same way that you and I would feel if we were in his shoes. Um, I'm only important to you if I can help you get out of trouble in some way. Otherwise, I'm a nobody. You don't, you don't even want me. Ever been guilty of that yourself? Treating someone unkind or rude? Neglecting them, rejecting them, mistreating them, failing to include them until you need them, until you need them. And then all of a sudden you want to be all buddy-buddy with them. Maybe you know somebody at work or at church who is not quite as sophisticated as you are and you're kind. Uh, and you rarely speak to them or have anything to do with them. At Fellowship Mills, you sit with your people and they sit by themselves alone but suddenly you find out you got car trouble and you remember that old so-and-so was a pretty good mechanic so you approach him and you'll hope he'll help you out with your problem now is that fair uh, as or christ-like to treat somebody like that you know how would you feel if that happened to you nobody sat with you before but now all of a sudden they want to talk and be friends what if we just treat people in our lives as precious souls, no matter how sophisticated they are or aren't, uh, or, or whether they have something that can help us or not? We just treat everyone as a precious soul. I, I think we can all agree that that is what Jesus would do, and that's what he wants us to do, right? Something to think about at our next fellowship meal or at your office Christmas party as you look around and you see old so-and-so over there by themselves. 
Well, the, the elders simply ignored Jephthah's concern over their hypocrisy and pressed on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's what we needed to ask you. The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're, we're turning to you now. Uh, come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be uh, head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, well, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? For real? Uh, okay, you, you, you kick me out of, the, out of, out of my homeland, uh, and now you're ready to make me the leader? Are, now, are you, are, are, do you really mean that? Verse 11, then the elders replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Jephthah was, has now been officially appointed as Israel's new judge. So he gets to work dealing with these Ammonites. Well, first, uh, he was wise. He, the first thing he tried was diplomacy with the Ammonites. He sent word to the king with this question, the king of the Ammonites. What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king's answer basically was, well... The reason is because you Israelites took our land over many years ago, and we want it back. We just want it back. Jephthah's reply, and it was a written reply, uh, was basically a history lesson for the king uh, about how things happened and how things had become the way they were. Uh, years ago, when Israel was trying to get from the desert on the western side of the Jordan over to the eastern side, to the, the major part of, of their promised land, they politely asked the rulers of the Transjordan, the western uh, side of Jordan, uh, the eastern side of Jordan, uh, if they could, all we want to do is pass through your land and cross the Jordan. That's all. We're not going to stay. We're not going to take anything. We're not going to hurt anybody. We just want to pass through. And everyone, including the Ammonites, refused to let them pass peacefully. Instead, they wanted to fight Israel. And make trouble for them. So this is what happened. Verse 21 and 22. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Ammonites, Amorites, who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. In other words, King, God gave us this land. We didn't just take it. God gave it to us. Um, verse 23 and 24. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out from before his people, Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Shemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, gives us, we will possess. So, you know, he says to them, you guys, I mean, if your God or God's gave you land wouldn't you keep it you wouldn't give it away and your god's not even real for goodness sake so so he would never even do that but and we will take what our god gives us because he is real and he did give it to us of course the king didn't accept that argument that the king didn't go you know you're right uh, let's just forget the whole thing no the king did not accept that, that argument and so diplomacy failed and as Bugs Bunny often would say, 
of course you realize this means war. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came to Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So Jephthah was ready to fight for God and to prove it for some crazy reason. <laughs> Jephthah decided to make a vow, a vow to God that God did not ask for, nor did God need. Yet Jephthah made it anyway. Let's see what that vow was. Verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. A couple of things to keep in mind about this oath. Let's, let's first of all talk about oaths and vows uh, from the word of God. Uh, in the Old Testament, in, in Numbers chapter 30, starting with verse 2 and following, there is some discussion about vows there. And let's just read the, the opening part of that. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. You know, we, we read from there, and we, as, we, as you continue reading that particular chapter, you see God took vows very seriously. So if you vow it, God expects you to keep it, whatever it is. Uh, but this passage basically relates to everyday vows that we would make to God or to others about you know, how to treat each other and commerce and things like that, um, relationships. Um, if, you, if you vow or promise to do something, God expects you to keep it. So there was some, some uh, discussion about vows from God in, in his word that Jephthah may have been familiar with. Secondly, along with the Bible, Jephthah lived in a culture that took vows very seriously. Uh, remember, Jephthah lived in a dualistic religious culture. In other words, many, many gods among all the pagans that lived around them. Uh, and with them were many superstitions that came with these religions and many horrible practices like offering human sacrifices was, was common among some of the, the, the pagan religions that Jephthah was surrounded with and maybe even participated in some before they all denounced them. Um, thirdly, considering the Bible and cult, the cultural view of a vow, Jephthah framed his vow very carelessly, <laughs> to say the least, very carelessly. When he said, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph, I will offer as a burnt offering. Hmm. You know, when the Spirit of the Lord came on, on Jephthah, uh, it's pretty obvious that his spiritual gift was not thinking through things before he spoke. <laughs> he wasn't slow to speak and quick to listen, was he? Um, what or, or, or who did, did he think was going to come out of the door of his house to meet him when he came home in triumph? You know, were there sheep that lived in there, in his house, uh, that he that regularly came out like, like Dino to, 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 to jump on top of you, uh, uh, to, to greet him? Or did he expect maybe a servant to be the first one to come out of his house. Or, uh, uh, you know, he was, maybe he went into pagan mode and pagan ritual mode, and he would have, maybe he would have been okay with offering a servant as a, an offering to God. 
man, I'd hate to be one of his servants if that's the way he felt. Did he forget that his only daughter lived in his house with him? That maybe she might be the first one that would come out. Did he forget to tell her? You know, I was going to tell her, honey, look, I'm gonna, when I come home, you don't be the first one that comes out, all right? Make sure the sheep or the servants come out first, not you. And where did God even tell him to make this vow or a vow like this? He did not. God did not ask him or tell him to make this vow. And certainly God would have never, ever asked him to offer a human as a sacrifice to him. You know, God had, has never done that and would never done that. In fact, in Jeremiah 19, verse 4 through 5, uh, speaking of human sacrifices, it basically says that something like that would never enter his mind. Now, we might think of Abraham and Isaac, right? Uh, and yeah, God did ask Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, but God w was never going to let Abraham go through with it. That was just a test to see if he would do it. Uh, but God would never have called Abraham to at, offer Isaac as a sacrifice or anyone else. The problem is, in Jephthah's mind, he fully intended to keep this vow no matter what. Maybe because of Scripture, of his understanding of Scripture, or maybe likely because of culture that he lived in. You, know, you, you may make a vow, uh, and if you do, you must keep it. That's what everybody believed around him no matter what you must keep it and this could go south really quick as we see verse 32 and 33 then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands he devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Minneth as far as Abel Karamim thus Israel subdued Ammon okay the victory is his Jephthah won and, and, and it would have been his no matter what. God had already decided he was going to give the Ammonites into his hands. So the victory would have been his no matter what. There was no need for a vow. And God never asked for one. Well, he goes home. And you got to wonder when or if it ever hit him. Oh, yeah, whatever comes out of my house. When I get back, uh, you know, i got to offer that for a sacrifice. Hmm. He quickly and tragically found out who that would be, didn't he? Or we'll see right here, verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Now, <laughs> wait, where's the sheep? Where's the sheep? Where's the servant? Honey, I thought I told you. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Don't be the first one that comes out. That's not the way this is supposed to be. He seemed to react, as you'll see, verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I, have, I am devastated. I will make a vow. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Jephthah may have have been ready to sacrifice a lamb for sure maybe maybe even a servant if a servant had come out but he was never he would have never chosen to sacrifice his own his one and only daughter yet in his mind here he had no choice 
Or did he? Or did he? I believe he did have a choice. Now, this is just my opinion about this. You might disagree with me. Uh, because God didn't ask for this vow. He, he would have never, ever approved or would ever desire a human sacrifice. So I think in God's eyes, Jephthah could have just done a redo on that one. <laughs> oh, God. I, I know I said what well, the first thing that comes out, but, but what I meant was, or what I should have said was, the first animal that comes out to greet me. Then I'll offer, offer that. Um, where are those sheep? <laughs> but Jephthah felt obligated to complete this vow, perhaps because of maybe the pagan culture that was still embedded in him. So that was, that was one of the problems with the Israelites during this time as they lived and worshipped the Canaanite false gods and, and all of their practices and beliefs were just deeply embedded. And even when they decided to repent and get rid of them, you know, it just didn't automatically all purge out of them. Perhaps that was the problem. It was such a ridiculous promise that no sane person or our God would have expected him to keep it. Except maybe those who feared those pagan gods. Oh, if I don't keep it, they might strike me down. This was on Jephthah, not Yahweh. Strangely, the daughters seemed to understand and agreed to this insane plan. She was willing to allow her father to kill her and offer her as a burnt offering. She only asked that she could go away with her friends for two months so she could mourn because she would never have what all women long for at that time, a husband and a family. Of course, she didn't have a future either. <laughs> but, you know, everyone has to die, right? So she mourned that before her death, she would never know the joy of a husband or children. She went away for two months, and when she returned, her father did to her what he had vowed. He murdered his daughter because of a ridiculous promise that wasn't necessary. The passage ends with the recognition of some type of Jewish celebration by women in honor of this young daughter. Scholars are, are, are not sure what this celebration really refers to. Beyond this passage, there's no mention of such a celebration anywhere else in the Bible uh, uh, or later in Jewish history even. Uh, uh, modern Jews don't celebrate anything like this. So some think, think it, this celebration may have been a cultural celebration uh, of that area and never adopted by Israel as a whole. Again, perhaps because it was more of a cultural thing than directed from God. You know, one thing is obvious when we read Judges and stories, the book of Judges and stories like this. The Judges were not perfect, were they? You know, later, Samson, uh, one of the most famous judges, proves over and over and over again that he cared much more about his own passions and his ego than he ever cared about his people and God's will. Jephthah makes this foolish vow and then foolishly keeps it. One lesson we learn from this is that, that God has and will always use imperfect people to serve him in his kingdom. He uses people who struggle with their egos, and he uses those who offer misguided and poorly thought out promises. He still can use them for his work. God can even use me with all of my flaws. And God can even use you 
with all of your flaws so that we can reach people that we know with all of their flaws. When we do something stupid, even sinful, you know, that's not a game killer in our relationship with God at all. Rather, it's an opportunity to see the, the poor choice we made, to repent, to regroup, and to try again. And this time, maybe thinking through it first. Uh, asking the Holy Spirit that we've talked about all along through this, this study that lives inside of us. Asking Him, God, don't let me make a mistake again. Uh, give me some guidance. Give me some direction so I can do it better this time. You know, I think it's even okay for us to realize that maybe we misunderstood what God was calling us to uh, and regroup with a clearer vision this time. You know, God, you know, and this is maybe for younger people who are facing marriage and thinking about that. God, I thought, I thought you wanted me to marry this person. You know, she's beautiful. She's fun. We have so much in common. You know, she's not a Christian, yeah, but... but I was hopeful and am hopeful that she would change eventually. Uh, the date set, we've already sent out all the invitations. But you know, God, the more I pray and listen and think and read about this relationship, the more I see that this is not your will. It was just mine. You know, a perfect guide for what God wants in our lives is found really in one place, in God's word not in our emotions, because our emotions without considering God's word will usually fail us and lead us down uh, a wrong path. God's word can keep us from making careless emotional choices and vows. And his grace can help us overcome our mistakes and still we can make a difference in the kingdom of God and in people's lives. Father, I thank you so much for Jephthah. Uh, Lord, it's, a, it's always a tragic story, and I've always um, felt, felt bad when I read this story because it, it just was so sad and seemed so unnecessary. And Jephthah just wasn't being wise. And I, and I just pray that, that we can learn from this, that you know, uh, choices are, uh, are always before us, and we regularly have to make them. But Lord, sometimes we don't go to you first like we should, and we just make the choices based on our emotions, the way we feel, uh, the way someone else thinks we should go. Uh, but Lord, it's very, it's very clear in your word in so many ways where, where our choices should come from. Uh, and, and so often, uh, if we would just take a few moments to take a deep breath, to, to lift up in prayer what we face, um, that you can guide us to the direction we need to go and make less bad choices. So, Father, thank you for this example today. Help us to know that we've all made bad choices. We've all gone down the wrong path. Um, but that's not a game killer for you uh, because you, time and time again, with Israel and with, with people like Jephthah and Samson and David, uh, you regularly you hated their sin, you hated the mistakes they made, but when they came back to you in repentance, you still used them for your kingdom. Help us to know that it's no different for us, that we can make a difference in serving you in, in your church here at Stony Brook. So thank you, Father, for this great story. 
uh, help us to apply it to our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.